the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sake on Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic beverages, sake and shochu, recorded, usually recorded, at the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo, and made possible with the support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. Expand we will do today as we are traveling to uh, Europe, and this is a very exciting uh, episode for me. Um, my name is Sébastien Lemoyne, and I am joined today by one of our, one of you, regular hosts on the show, uh, Justin Potts. Hello, Justin. Uh, good evening, Sebastian. Good to have you with us. Yeah. And I am absolutely delighted to uh, welcome two guests for our show today. Um, one is Tom Wilson from Kampai Sake in London, and Grégoire Boeuf from Les Larmes du Levant in France. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hi there. Hi, all. How shall we start? I mean, maybe we'll, we'll start with, um, with Tom. I mean, would you kindly, Tom, introduce yourself and uh, tell us about how you built your relationship with Japan and with sake? And um, maybe about that very particular moment when you decided to brew sake. <laughs> Great question. So, uh, hi there, everyone. Um, my name's Tom, Tom Wilson. I'm one of the co-founders and head brewer at uh, Kampai. So we're the UK's first sake brewery. We're based in, in London. We're in a little borough of southeast London um, in an area called Peckham. Um, we've been, I guess, a commercial sake brewery now for just over five years. Uh, we founded in the summer of 2016. Managed to uh, persuade the British government to give us a brewing license for sake um, by the beginning of 2017. So we're, we're over, over four years uh, kind of brewing and selling, which has been great. But uh, for me, sake has been a really, really kind of long journey that never had any starting basis uh, or any intention to have a brewery or end up where we are. It's kind of a lot of circumstance really. Um, but basically I originally fell in love with Japanese cuisine and that, that was actually via, via New York. So when I was a teenager, my parents actually migrated to New York and I was at university in the UK and was kind of spending my holidays and everything back and forward. At the time, New York was kind of, it probably still is a little bit, um, further ahead with exposure to Japanese food, Japanese culture, uh, Japanese drinks. Um, and just via that kind of exposure, I actually started drinking uh, sochu first and then got into sake afterwards. Um, and then really on the returns, because I started working out in New York for a bit, but then on the return um, back to London, was really on the hunt for for those same flavors and that same experience um which at the time was few and far between kind of quite hard to get hold of um only a handful of places really 
obviously a lot's changed since then. But that was originally my kind of drive to wanting to travel to Japan. And it was much more focused on cuisine and sake. Um, and the rest is kind of history. There was, there was a small light bulb moment that happened once. Um, that was really about kind of discovering how sake was made. I enjoyed from the consumer point of view, just enjoying sake but I didn't delve in too much originally um, to how it was produced. And it was really walking into a couple of small producers in, uh, in Japan, literally on my first trip, that I had this kind of slight light bulb moment where I was like, ah, sake is actually really similar to beer in how it's made. And I already had experience with brewing beer and home brewing beer. So when I came back to the UK, it was kind of niggling away. I wanted to work on some rice fermentation and it made me delve into uh, sake brewing and sake fermentation and koji making. And I've got an, an obsessive personality and I think a lot of people have to, to be kind of in this, in this world. Um, and it just massively snowballed. So we ended up having about four years or so of just purely home brewing sake kind of took over our apartment. And then we thought, okay, it's either we either kind of pack it in cause it's kind of going out of control or we find a small lockup, a location where we can kind of move our kit to. We at the time started a, uh, I say we, this is my, my, I was going to say, you keep saying we, yeah. there's, there's uh, a partner in crime involved yeah, in here somewhere. My, <laughs> my, my lovely, uh, patient wife, Lucy. Um, uh, and then basically it was kind of, look, it was, it was, it was me or the sake. And I thought, you know, I can do both. So, um, we got a small lockup in, in, uh, the, just the other side of Peckham from where we are now. And, we started doing social media, a few bits. We then garnered some attention. We had um, some wine sommeliers, some sake kind of tutors and sommeliers wanting to come and taste our sake. And then we had a few places wanting to place orders. And we're like, wow, okay, we need to make this legit. We need to kind of get our licensing on and all this. So that's what happened. So we never kind of started out thinking, here's a business plan. We want to launch a brewery and do all of this. It was, it was totally from experimentation, passion first, and just continuing to go to Japan and experience sake and sake brewing in Japan throughout all of that. Um, and then that kind of genesis, that birth of the actual brewery as we know it as, uh, now as Kampai was kind of purely organic and we were kind of... It, it was leading the way and leading the charge rather than us forcing it. It was kind of quite interesting. So it's got kind of got its own momentum. Um, we were in that original space for about two years. Then um, we outgrew that space pretty rapidly. And also we really wanted to have um, kind of uh, a place that people could come, experience sake, have a drink, go for a tour, learn about it. So we found a new location, which is where we are now. We've been there for just over three years. And basically the brewery's on the, the ground floor. And then the upstairs, we have a kind of a double mezzanine with a bar. We do tours, tuition. We had like WSET level three and level one, like being hosted there and stuff, which has been pretty cool. Um, and we're, we're now open 
five days a week, hospitality as well. Um, to do kind of big events. We have a load of outdoor space. And uh, yeah, we, we get like a lot done in that space. And I think we've, we've kind of outgrown that a little bit now as well. Oh, it's good. Sounds exciting. Yeah. And what about you, Greg? Uh, well, hello, hello. My name's Greg. I, I'm the crew amateur of Les Larmes de Levant, which translates in Japanese to Shuari Shuzo. Uh, maybe you can get that from Tears of the Rising Sun in English, roughly. Uh, my first true encounter with sake was in uh, 2013. Uh, I had sake before, like in the early 2000 in, uh, in French, but I couldn't get an exact precise memory of what it was in what I felt when I drank that. But the, the first time I truly encountered sake was uh, during a family trip uh, nine years ago. Uh, basically, my stepbrothers, um, my stepbrother, only one, um, decided the family trip of this year. And he decided Japan because he was a huge geek and a manga and video game addict. And we stayed for 10 days and... Uh, uh, my dad and I, we like to uh, drink and eat a lot. Um, and the second we eat um, Ginza, uh, we immediately entered Nizakaya and it started there. The first, the first two hours in Japan, we spent that in a Nizakaya and I was absolutely like touched by uh, how what sake was and what it represented for Japan in the Japan culture and history and uh, I was very moved by something that was very close to what I had experienced with uh, which is wine is I, I live in a wine I almost live in a wine yard I'm surrounded by wines uh, wine yards uh, I mean which is a quite famous appellation for white wines and everything I had uh, with sake remind me of something in I mean the temporality of wine but everything was so different it kind of cracked something in my head and it opened a way to a new world and a new thing and a new cultural item that was huge like I was really uh, struck down by the quality of the drink uh, the history I made some research we spent 10 days almost all I did was drinking sake and eating Japanese food. So it started like that. And I made research and I tried everything that's very easy to get info on the internet. Like basically you can immediately start to have uh, what Anjazo, Junmai, Kanzake, Kobozake, uh, everything you can. We tried pretty much anything. It was an absolute joy to discover something new. So when we got back to France after these 10 days, uh, we brought many, many bottles. Uh, I think my, my dad has a rich tendency to like overbuy anything, especially when it comes to food. So we had to buy two extra luggage to bring the 30 ishobin we brought from Japan that time. <laughs> and so we started like popping up these bottles as friend, friends would come to the house and people we knew, and oh, just try that sake and drink, beat it. And so it happens that one day, one guy knew a guy who knew a guy who had a son who was importing sake. And that guy was living something like one hour ago from my place. So we grabbed the phone, called him, asked for kind of tasting at home. Uh, we invited a winemaker's friend and we are making friends. And we had a small party and a small sake event. And we bought sake from that guy, which happens to be Simeon Mola from Osake, which is an importing company in France. And oh, let's be honest, uh, at the end of the dinner, everybody was 
has to like like hammer. And I can't recall who said that we shall make second in France. Maybe it was my dad, maybe it was me. I, I honestly have no clues. Uh, the thing is, uh, the two Osaka guys uh, were very eager to start Osaka uh, on their own, but they had not the time nor the money. So uh, I just grabbed that ball uh, when we just said that and said, okay, let's, let's try to work together. So we kept in touch starting to the basis of a, um, a business plan who turned out to be 100% bullshit <laughs> because we had absolutely no data at the time. But we kept in touch for two years and after, after some time, they introduced me to a, a very dear person to me, which is Umetsu-san from Umetsu-Shizo, which you might know by the, the brand Fure. Uh, he was one of the, the crew that was imported by uh, Osaka, that importing company. Uh, I spent three days talking with him while I was uh, in France. And by the end of the three days, okay, let me help you. Uh, it's, it was in March uh, 2015. And he said, okay, just Sake making season is uh, end of September. So just start to learn some few basics of Japanese. And you come to my Sakagura and I teach you how to become a Kuramoto. I teach you the basics and I will help you with your project. So, uh, I went there in September 2015, started to work at his brewery, um, learning how to how sake was made. Uh, just to be clear, I'm not a toji, I'm not a maker, I'm a kuramoto. I was taught how to be an owner of sakagura. I'm not a technical maker. I know how sake is made, I know the basics, um, but I'm not a toji. So the time I spent there, uh, I learned first how sake was made, how, how sakagura is supposed to live um, and what we should do to make sake. Uh, I spent also some, some time in Tokyo in an izakaya. Uh, I think Justin, you've been to my friends uh, at Nihonshiya uh, to learn the, the relationship that Japanese people have with sake, which is very different than we have with wine, especially in the consum consumption process. Uh, and during that time, uh, I also had to gather contacts for um, machines. Uh, some are very specific. Uh, I had to find some suppliers for rice, uh, a polishing company. And of course, I had to find staff to help me because, uh, as I said, I had not enough knowledge, not close enough knowledge to start making sake. So I found that one Toji and I, one Kashira uh, to start the project. And we started that uh, I bought two buildings, uh, old uh, silk sewing factories, um, and we started everything anew, uh, built that 8,000 square meters uh, Sakagura from scratch, uh, brought everything, uh, um, the Koshiki was brought from Japan, the Fune was brought from Japan. Uh, we started buying tanks, agencing everything, and we started brewing in early month of uh, 2017. So it's been now five years, um, and that's pretty much it. I, Craig, I find it's very interesting. I think you're maybe the first person that I've ever encountered that runs and operates a sake brewer overseas that said they trained to become a kuramoto as opposed to a brewer or a toji. <laughs> and that's, I, I, that's, that's fascinating to me because, I mean, you're looking at that. There's a lot that, that goes into that being responsible for the brewery is essentially, you know, the the loose 
definition would be responsible for what happens at that brewery, you know? And so that being said, the logistical and economic challenges and the way these things run, they're obviously going to be very different from, you know, starting a brewery in France versus running a brewery. I'm not sure how long Umezu Shuzo has been around, but I'm sure it's more than a hundred years probably. So you're looking at a very specific scenario. I'm wondering what, what was your, I'm sure there were many, many things, but when you say I learned how to become a Kuramoto, what were the things that you really took home with you from that? Uh, I think if my shisha would hear that, he would say that I'm definitely not still a Kuramoto and I'm still learning. Obviously, that's a Japanese ways, but um, I think that might sound a bit obnoxious, so I'm sorry, but I brought a very high sense of responsibility for sake what it is, what it should be, what I shall defend and what I will defend. Um, all I, I feel that I, I'm, I'm an historic geek. I like history. Uh, and that's what I brought from Japan. I guess it's, I, I don't know if it's very, if I'm being very clear, but yes, that's the sense of responsibility I have towards Sake before having responsibility. It's like, kind of religious thing. Uh, I, I have a few faith on other uh, religious thing, but um, the identity of sake is something I hold very dear. So I guess that's the thing I wrote and that's the passion I was uh, taught by, by Umetsu. Uh, I mean, Umetsu is almost, uh, is made, I think, of maybe 10% water and 19% Anjunmai Namagenshu. <laughs> I so say you, you, you went to a, a very particular place to, to learn as well. Yeah. Well, we can, yes. well, we can, we can, yes. we can get into that here in a little bit. We get into some of the sure. technical stuff, but that, no, that's, that's fascinating. But then Tom, you got into it from the brewing side of things. Did you ever run an independent business or anything prior to that? Or was this, was Kampai sort of the impetus for becoming a, a small business owner and now a growing business owner? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a contrasting situation from, from uh, Greg. Um, we, we never, as I said before, never got into this from a business standpoint whatsoever. Um, it's kind of the, the, the business has, has kind of formed around our passion for sake and for, ma- and for making sake. So, uh, yeah, it's been kind of, kind of an, an interesting approach. But I think if we started... In our, in our personal situation with, with that kind of business goal and, you know, one year, two year, five year, et cetera, we wouldn't have made it past 18 months, I don't think, because we had this you know, crazy stuff happen along the route, which, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a bit. Um, we, we, we weren't starting with a lot of money. Both Lucy and I were working full time and then moonlighting at the brewery. So we were working like evenings, seven days a week, um, making the product whilst learning and improving whilst going backwards and forwards from Japan. Um, whilst kind of, yeah, it was many kind of sacrifices, but it was, it was so worth it. And, um, Kind of looking back, it, it, it feels in one sense quite a short, a short period of time. We're looking back on kind of, you know, commercial five years, but it, it it's kind of gone quickly. But so much has happened. Um, we've kind of, you know, we're like I don't know, we're like Camp Campai four already. It's kind of evolved um, 
pretty rapidly. And I think we've had to do that, um, especially over the last two years, right? It's been sink or swim time for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, I think, I think having that focus for us in our personal circumstance on, on the brewing, on the product, on the technique, um, on that evolution and improvement um, and being so close to the coalface and having that focus is what actually got us through um, rather than at least for the first couple of years looking at financials and stuff because it just wouldn't have worked out. Also, we only started employing people two and a half years ago, so kind of halfway through our commercial journey now. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of been crazy in itself. But, um, <laughs> and I, th I think there's, there's been that kind of nice touch point with our consumers and people, people traveling. We've kind of become amazingly uh, like a little destination spot that people, at least pre-pandemic, were coming from all over the world to kind of say hello and see us. And I think because the way we kind of tread, we try and tread a really fine line at Kampai where we're straddling um, the traditions of Japan that we're, that we're based in, all our techniques, everything's handmade. A lot of what we're doing in, in Kampai is like ultra traditional technique wise, but then we're straddling this line between that and kind of a contemporary modern um, style and, and brewery and kind of look as well. Um, and just really, really doing our best to make sake accessible and uh, to, to, to potentially a, a wider, wider audience as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Now that makes, uh, I'm curious then, and I think this is probably something that I think a lot of brewers getting started there, they're, they're faced with either consciously or, or uh, unconsciously, but you know, we're in Japan. We we have a very clear definition as to what sake is. So it's you know, there's a lot of room to play within that. You can create a lot of diversity, but as far as what that is, it's very defined. For you, gentlemen, I guess when you got started, you had to kind of define for yourselves what sake was for you. And I'm sort of curious how you both define that for yourselves at the beginning when you set out to start brewing. And I'm curious if, if that has changed or evolved at all over time. Who's going first? <laughs> I, I, anybody want to tackle, anybody want to tackle that one? Um, Greg, you want, Greg, John, go for it. I, as you wish, as you wish. Okay. Um, for, for us, um, <laughs> we kind of had this self-imposed, um, I guess, definition of, of sake, which much, which, which basically exactly conformed to what, what's happened and what's gone before in Japan. So for us, both process and product, so both kind of hand in hand. So our, our, our goal, the way we look at it now is we kind of look at it as tradition plus, okay? So we're trying to add, um, there's, there's no point in our view of brewing exactly the same sake that is already being imported. But we want to use traditional techniques to brew true sake but we have a little bit of flexibility to try and at least make the flavor profile or something more contemporary to pair with the cuisine that we are having in london so our goal from day one is never to bastardize sake we, we we're not here to kind of screw up the rule book and start again 
like 100% we're, we're based in those traditions and we truly respect that and, and do our utmost to protect that and conform to that. However, we do have a little bit more flexibility and the ability in a really measured way, you know, it's, it's always a continual conversation where we're treading this line in our brewery where we can utilize that flex for kind of two, two reasons, really. One is that accessibility standpoint to reach new people and to push the boundaries in a respectful way. But the other is actually to kind of allow our, our team, our, our brewers to flex that brewing muscle to keep their head in the game and, and stay motivated and stay interested. I think if we are brewing like one sake all year, every year, I think that potentially wouldn't be creative enough for the kind of the, the minds and the people that we have um, in our amazing team. So we we like to do part of the bit, part of the, our breweries making consistent, more traditional classical styles of sake. And the other part is kind of having a bit of experimentation because that is really what we are at our core at Kampai. We are an ex- we are born from experimentation and we like to maintain that. So we, we keep those summer months every year. So it's say two, two and a half months a year is purely for R and D. Like I don't let the team brew normal routine sake that we brew throughout the year. And that's kind of, so we can flex that brewing muscle and create some really cool new ideas for the next season. Cause we probably run over the course of a year, one third of our sakes are kind of signature regular styles and then two thirds a limited edition that's how we like to run it uh, i like that R- that r&d approach is that something that you kind of had built into the dna from the beginning or is that something that you've found a necessity to sort of to, to sort of build into it over time so 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 originally those two and a half months were 12 months that that was what we were doing right so um <laughs> yeah. as we as we began to get better at our craft and um, create sake we were truly proud of. Those, that, that sake became kind of the bread and butter of, of the brewery and is what's kind of kept, kept the lights on, right? But we want to we keep evolving and keep moving forward. So we like to keep, um, like I said, our, our brewing muscle kind of toned and ready for the next season. Um, it's born from that experimentation and it's a huge part of what we do now. Um, like we, we've, we've just produced like two Kijo shoes. One is being barrel aged in red burgundy oak. And, you know, we're doing, we're doing like traditional things, but with a bit of a, a bit of an edge um, and something that's conforming with um, wine, wine making techniques, beer brewing techniques as well. And bringing those kind of local cultures into our traditional sake brewing techniques. Um, does, that juxtaposition is, is quite interesting for us. That's cool. In, in developing that bread and butter, I mean, I'm sure it's, you know, it's something that you're refining all the time and it's something that's, you know, an, an, yeah. ever, an ever improving, um, ever evolving process. But over that period of going, say, you know, from 12 months to three months of, you know, mm. going to, what, what were the things that you found helped bring you to a place where you, where you can say, we now have, you know, X number of products or labels that we can, that we're confident in, that we depend upon that this yeah. can be, that this can showcase Kampai. 
What, what, what did you yeah, need? It's, what was it? It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a multifaceted thing. So time, so brewing, literally just time, making mistakes and brewing. And making mistakes is the, the most important thing you could be doing, which is why for us that four plus years of just home brewing and messing around, you know, we, we kind of pride ourselves on we've only ever made a single batch of sake, even from the beginning at homebrew, without making our own koji. So we've never used boarding koji or anything like that. So for us, that's the crux, the core of our, of our brewery and what we focus on. So time and then size. So being able to actually grow um, phys physical size. So of the space that we've got, the tanks that we've got, but also financially, um, having a couple of years under your belt, being able to actually sell some sake to make some money to reinvest it into bigger tanks, bigger koshiki, bigger, um, um, like we've just built a new Koji Mura in the last, what, nine months, all these things. Um, also, obviously, um, that, that, that additional time to spend time in Japan, experience more brewing and variation in Japan, but also building those relationships with our suppliers, getting better quality rice, teaming that up with our, the right polishing companies, getting better rice washing equipment and changing our koji suppliers and all these things, you know, um, being able to get the right yeast. I mean, that, that was, that was always, and, it, and that's a real common question that we get from a lot of other breweries and, and home brewers is where can I get hold of the right yeast? Um, so being able to actually access the Brewing Society of Japan, the Japanese government's yeast bank and getting hold of those certain varietals, things like that, which happened for us about three years ago, that in itself is a game changer. So all those things added together, plus bringing new blood onto the team. So we're now, including myself, we're a, we're a three-person brewing team. Um, one's from a cider background, one's from a wine background. So we're all bringing different ideas, different techniques, different thought process. It's great. Yeah. Cool. I want to I dig into a bit of that, that technical stuff here in a bit too. But Greg, I'm curious as to sort of how you have defined sake for yourself as well and sort of how that has grown or evolved or, or not. Mm -hmm. Well, well, you know where I come from. So I was I was taught by Umid's son, uh, and he was raised with a we are a son so kind of motto about sake. So uh, first, uh, I took an oath, a spiritual oath, to him, but I will only make junmai sake. So that's that's the same point. Only junmai sake. Um, uh, over the time, I had maybe fewer trouble than some because I had access uh, straight from the start to uh, Neon Jizokyokai, uh, Kobo's East, um, which I think was quite unique by the time. Um, so we started using that number seven. And we've switched now. Uh, about 80% of uh, our sakis are Junmai, Mutenka, Kimoto. So we only use, um, how do you say, indigenous East. So that's, that is kind of defining uh, the kind of sake we're making. Um, even in Japan, very few people uh, work with that Muten Kakimoto style. So um, 
that that's I think one of the core identity of what we are making. And what I had in mind was um, what I wrote from Japanese: sake goes with food. So uh, I focus on, as Tom said, uh, local food. What's what's the people eat in France is very different from what people eat in Japan, and it's different from what they eat in England. So. We had to focus on making uh, sake that will go well with that food. That said, uh, the way we managed to do that, I think it took some time to get sake from uh, to where I wanted them to be. Uh, in order to do that, we have to balance that uh, neonchido and um, amino acidity levels. I think we are making, they would say, koi sake in Japan. We make sake with bit more full body style. Uh, I do not, um, I don't like caprosan style sake. That's just not my thing. I, for most of them, I cannot drink them uh, because I don't like that taste at all. It reminds me of musk and very different kind of fragrance. And it's been very hard to pair that with food here. I mean, uh, I always keep, um, I have many, many sommelier comings to the brewery. And I have, I always have a bottle of uh, Junmai with uh, yeast seal 24. So, because it's quite opposite as what we're making. And every time I make them compare it and say, nah, okay, I get the feeling that I cannot do pairings with that thing. So, technically, we make not flavor style, capron style sake, we make ground Junmai. Um, and we have four sake nose. Um, Two of them, we treat them like shinshus. Uh, one is a daiginjo, the other is just a junmai. Uh, these two are supposed to be drunk, I think, preferably cold, at least in France. And two other sake, which are brewed with uh, tamazakai, which brings more acidity. Uh, that's that's koshu, but at least three years age koshu. And there goes mostly uh, Johan Nudekan, and I'm trying to push the Kanzake also in France. So yeah, the approach is first, what kind of food is going to be served and what kind of philosophy I want to bring inside my brewery. So to me, um, my, my main goal was to make Mutenka Kimoto. That's the thing. I started the brewery with that idea. So, now we've almost reached only the Junmai. It's uh, the Daiginjo is still brewed with uh, with um, Jozo Yix, uh, number seven. But hopefully in the future we'll make some other things and turn that to Kimoto also. Like it's, it's it's interesting because I you know see for I guess for listeners this is the first time you and I have communicated at all in semi semi face to face. So but even you know seeing you know what you've been working on you know it was very it was also it was very clear that you started in a place that I think a lot of people outside of Japan don't choose to start from. It's a place that you often see other people. It, it's not better worse, but working toward, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get, you know, this together and then we'll work on Kimoto and then we'll work on these other things. Um, whereas you started from a different place. Mm-hmm. I have a, a question. Since both of you have started from, I would say the tradition uh, in terms of, of uh, process, even though you're trying to create products that fit uh, your domestic markets. Um, and knowing that sake as a word is, has a very broad meaning, do you actually feel 
the need to um, protect what you're doing in terms of um, of products in um, in in Europe, or do you trust consumers to um, actually buy uh, the mm. products they like? I, I I think it's particularly particularly challenging because we're we're obviously talking about sake on an international level. Um, there's definite room, and I I. I would know a number of people that would want to get on board with that. Um, but I think there's other challenges we're facing locally that will probably take precedent. Big one off the top of my head is taxation in the UK. Um, we're a sake, we're, we kind of tick all the boxes to qualify as a, um, be defined as a beer, but we're not taxed as a beer. We're taxed as what's known as a made wine. So we're actually in the highest tax category i believe in france gregoire you're you're getting away with uh, a lighter touch on tax but we're looking at say if i'm selling a bottle of genshu we're looking at nearly four pound a liter tax which is astronomical um and then i'm doing sparkling even if it's at eight and a half percent you're, you're again paying four pound a liter. It's, uh, it's, so you are, you know, if, if you want to make premium sake, um, pre- you know, brewed properly, premium packaging, all of this, you're still starting on, you know, per bottle, three pound tax is your starting point before you've even made anything. So it's, uh, it's, it's a tricky one. And then we've got obviously like sales tax, VAT, and you're actually charged VAT on your alcohol duty. So you're paying tax on your tax, which is kind of crazy again. And that's 20% here. Um, so that's, that's kind of more of an immediate challenge. Um, I think sake is in its infancy enough where potentially a few swift measures regarding um, protection, taxation, to enable kind of more a defined way of promoting sake, whether it's imported or made locally, um, could go a long way in the UK. But unfortunately, because we're falling in this obscure tax bracket, which is made wine, there's not many producers or much product being imported into the UK that fall into that. You kind of have less, less bodies behind you to make the argument because there's only a handful of people falling into that category. So at the moment, we're kind of a little bit um, forgotten about, I would say. <laughs> well, here it's uh, the, tax, the tax thing is a bit different. Uh, in France, sake exists as a product on its own. It's so uh, sake uh, and a few other things that are not mocked wine, but sake exists as a word in uh, as means for the custom service. Uh, the taxation depends on what you know the degree of alcohol. Below 15, it's like three cents for one bottle. Above 15, it's more like uh, 1.5 euros for a bottle. So that's it's been defined. Uh, the, the thing is, when you try to sell sake in France and I guess in Europe, the first is you have to explain a lot of things. I spend more time teaching to customers and somebody and explaining what sake 
And that it's not Baiju and it's not like some kind of vodka made with sorgo from the Chinese and it, it's not something you drink as a digestive. So you have to explain yourself. Um, that, that does the work. And I do believe that people are able to tell the difference on their own. There is no need to over uh, pile uh, kind of labels and things like that. I, I've been very concerned about the, 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 the new thing called that, that GIs and uh, how Saki is trying to get confused in some kind of mocked wine thing and that is slowly becoming Canada dry but for wine. And that is absolutely more confusing for people here than it is bringing them uh, light and it shows and it teaches things. It doesn't teach them what Saki is, it just keeps on confusing them. So uh, I'm less concerned about the absence of labelization in Europe than the rich tendency of over-labelizing in Japan and trying to, because they want to get new market shares in Europe. We, if we want to drink something that looks like wine, we will buy wine bottles. First, because it's twice, maybe thrice cheaper than... Mm, mm, wine mimicking sake here and because it's the true test and if we want sake we will buy sake i think you're right like um clar clarity clarity and labeling i think is super important and i think if if someone's proud of what they're making or proud of what they're producing um and and importing then you're going to have this clarity of labeling right so you're, you're going to do that as kind of self-policing there there's downsides to over-regulation and protection because we, we, there's already so many barriers to entry for new sake brewers, um, new people setting up a new brewery in the UK and France, et cetera. It's very, all these things we've been discussing um, from idea, technique, experience, financials, all of these things are huge barriers to entry. We don't want to put up more. We, we want there to be, more, they want there to be more sake imported and more sake produced locally in all of these countries. So I think as long as um, there's kind of a broad understanding by the consumer and the a respect for the product, people are intelligent enough to make their own educated decision. Um, and obviously that, that kind of education and exposure to premium sake is has come a long way in a short period of time and is continuing to improve every day. So I think there's automatically a level of protection that's built in. Obviously, all of these things are kind of open to, um, to individual interpretation. Um, and uh, I'm sure there'll be dubious products on the market um, that we've all seen before or are going to come up in the future. But again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean to say that that's a bad thing because as far as I'm concerned, as long as someone's talking about sake, I don't really mind whether it's good, bad or whatever. At least it's a conversation to be had. Um, whereas 10, 15 years ago, there wasn't a conversation, right? So I think, I think, I think there's, there's enough room for everyone and, if um, some of these things that are crossing a line where some people think maybe that isn't sake or maybe it is and it's an evolution in what sake is, I think, I think that's, 
that's an interesting topic and something for us for us to kind of continue to debate debate going forward. Yeah, yeah. What 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 does the brewery look like for both you guys right now? Sort of what was with without you know I'm sure you have a lot of of weight you know from the last couple of years. There's a lot to unpack in there, but you know even you know what's where where, where are you at right now? What's if you would just kind of tell us where where you're at, what you're thinking, and where you're yeah. where you're hoping to take things. I mean, ours ours was kind of twofold because we had we had Brexit and the pandemic. Um, so wonderful. We we said we weren't going to talk about the B word too much, but um, uh, that meant we, we were kind of growing growing our exports, um, particularly into Europe, and that basically just caused kind of a, a complete stop at that. So we've. We've had a much kind of home local focus, which is, which has been, I think actually it's been a good thing. Um, the pandemic, uh, the first three months when things properly kicked off here in the UK, um, well, like two weeks before the lockdown here in the UK, me and my wife had a baby. So it's been an interesting 18 months for that reason alone. Um, but basically those first three months, we basically had to wind down, shut everything down. And that was kind of bang in the middle of the brew season, right? We still had sake and tank. It was kind of all a bit, all a bit crazy. Um, a lot of uncertainty. But the first three months was kind of a little bit panic stations. We weren't really sure if we were going to survive, what was going to happen. Um, and then we just went back to basics and thought, okay, how do we, how do we get through this? So we just had to pivot um we my my decision was rather than kind of retreating and tightening my belt i wanted to spend more money and invest and use the time to improve what we're doing so we um ended up setting up um investing in all the infrastructure to do our own national distribution direct um set up our own web sh- web shop that all went live for the beginning of June last year. And at the same time, we're building new um, Kojimura, investing in new kit, all the things that we, that we wanted for the last 18 months is like, let's make this happen. Let's use this time wisely. And we, um, we use the online shop really as our survival tool. That's kind of what kept, kept the bills pay, kept the lights on, kept the salaries going. We, we kept everybody on and coming out the other end of the pandemic, we had secured additional outdoor space. So we'd taken on like another lease. We'd taken on a lease of a building opposite us where we'd invested and set up our own kitchen. So we now have kind of four different businesses. We have kind of the tap room, um, the online shop and the physical shop, the brewery for wholesale and now a kitchen as well. So the hospitality part of our business, we kind of have really leaned on. Um, and we had such amazing support online, um, support from people that were already existing customers buying our sake online. Plus now, because we had this kind of national reach where we were doing, dealing with customers directly, you know, sending sake all over the UK has just been amazing. Um, and the response has been great. So we've kind of come out the pandemic stronger because we've we've kind of, 
built more awareness about our brand. We did tons of online tastings and all these things during the pandemic. Um, we've got a, a, a stronger, more discerning customer base now because people had that time during lockdown to drink the drinks at the back of their liquor cabinets and buy something new and experiment with cooking and all of these things. And we're definitely living in a bit more of a quality over quantity um, type situation with alcohol consumption now, which is great. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're feeling pretty good. Um, I just wish that this summer we had better weather because the weather in the UK was terrible this summer. So we're kind of counting on all this. You know, we've got basically capacity at our tap room for about 150 people, but um, nearly two thirds of that, about 60% of that is outside. Oh, wow. So you have, a, you know, midsummer's day and it's raining. You're kind of, you're kind of in trouble, but yeah, but overall it's been great. And now we're kind yeah. of looking forward to bedding in um, new brewing season. We're literally kicking stuff off this week. So uh, yeah, we're, 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 we're back in the game and we're feeling good. Very good. Well, we actually have, so, so, cause we've done six months um, uh, at, at the kitchen. So we had a first residency. So we had um, some amazing chefs in that were doing, kind of Japanese barbecue and a few bits. They've just finished. And then we've got um, new amazing chefs coming in starting this Friday. And they're doing um, amazing woman, Moto-san. She's from Osaka. And they're, they're focusing on Osaka street food. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. How does, how does, how does sort of just the, the British drinking culture, pub culture, how does that sort of, does that inform your experience or kind of what you do or what you feel like people look for there at all? Or uh, it does, but it kind of, I guess, this kind of izakaya culture, this kind of blend somewhere between a, a bar, like a dive bar and a pub or something kind of coming together um, is, is, kind of, is kind of the vibe that we've always gone for and that kind of, that kind of mix. So our, our focus of drinks, obviously, sack is, is front and center. So we, we have a big focus on draft on, uh, so Namazake on tap, um, then bottled by the glass, etc., And then we have imported sake. So we have a rotating list of sake that we bring in from Japan or, or other international brewers, which is, which is amazing. Um, and then the rest of the menu, which is about, I don't know, the other 30, 40% is kind of Japanese style craft beers and, uh, Japanese whiskeys, spirits, cocktails, etc. So we, we, we go down a bit of a sake cocktail route as well because we don't want to kind of exclude anyone. So when people come, you might have a group of four. Two of them might be super into sake and they're kind of dragging their partner or their friend along. So you don't want to necessarily force a Moroccan Amagenshu down their throat, but <laughs> maybe a, like an Umashu sake cocktail or something is a good place to start and so um, it's, yeah, we just, we just have like a really relaxing, chill place that sits somewhere between that izakaya bar tap room kind of space. Yeah. God, I got to get over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotta, we got to remedy this here. Greg, how about, how about you, sir? What's, walk, walk us through a little bit, kind of where, where you're at now and kind of how, how you got the, there with the last, the last, yeah, last 18 months, couple of years. What's, how, how have you ridden, ridden, ridden out the well, storm? Once again, I got pretty lucky. Uh, for starters, uh, 
in 2020s, we decided with Tanaka to not make sake. So we made a yachis in the production because the building is very old. It's a, one part of the Sakagura is 19th century, or beginning of 19th century building. And we had to change the roof at all. So we decided not to craft sake, which by the time I thought it was a very bad thing and turns out to be a very, very, very lucky choice because three months after that, we the pandemic hit uh, and it, it hit very hard. So uh, during that, the first time I focused, uh, I worked with my dad who has a, a pharmacy and during the first five months of the pandemic, I spent every day for 18 hours straight making hydroalcoholic solution, that thing for washing your hands. I made 400,000 liters of that by myself. Uh, and so that my dad could supply um, pretty much uh, half of France with that thing because it was running dry everywhere. Uh, then things started to get a bit more normal and the, the end of 2020, we still had a 40% uh, growth in global income for Sakagura. Uh, volumes, sales were um, lesser in volumes, but higher in margin because um, my, my customer ship is uh, about 60% of uh, restaurants, 40% uh, um, Sakaya-sans, and uh, I almost don't sell to private customers directly. So uh, during that time, people order more and more of the internet on the website. So the margin were bigger and we somehow managed to still make that uh, since the first years, every year we grow from 25 to 50%. So that what was still the case in 2020. And in 2021, I'm already at the point that I made, I, I made in, as, as today, uh, the same amount of uh, income we had from last year. So we're still going to get that 30, 40% growth. So, uh, I think it's very lucky. I was very lucky to be able to start that thing with my dad. Um, but hey, and especially the, the, the French government, I think they showed very... Um, that the, the, the way they handle things, uh, economically speaking, that was... Very, very good. Uh, the welfare state we have here proved to be exceptionally efficient. Is we I barely suffered from any economic consequences because salaries have been paid almost in full by the French government for uh, at least eight, some somewhere like eighteen months. Um, the uh, all the loans we had um, are with the banks were kept on hold for one full year, which was. Very helpful. So it means that all the money we had, we could use to uh, sustain the living and keeping the activity, and everything was being taken care of. And I think it's uh, it's fairly it's fair to say that they did a very good job. Honestly, I'm very lucky on that side. So sorry, just before you ask a question, um, there is something that I would like you to to clarify. I mean, you said your, your customer base was restaurants, 60% and 40% sake shops, or let's say um, wine shops, probably in France. And that during the pandemic, uh, people, clients started to hit or, or call you direct, but were they sake shops or, or wine shops? Or have you started a retail business uh, during the pandemic? We, we try to push the retail uh, selling of the internet 
And people were still buying uh, only essential shops couldn't remain open. And of course, in France, the liquor shops were deemed essentials. <laughs> so uh, we still had customers and people, as some say, they, they had drunk the, the, the liquor they had on the chimney and they emptied all the stuff they had home. And they were, some of them were very fancy to try something new. And one thing we should take into account is that people had more money to spend on alcohol because uh, no holidays, no, you cannot go outside and not going to the movies, not going to the restaurants, and people had money to buy and discover things. Uh, honestly, if everybody uh, drank the way I did during the pandemic, I think we would be rich, all of us. <laughs> people drank a lot. Like, uh, I drifted from one bottle to two bottles a uh, a day so maybe yeah, people drink a lot this is something that the, the british yes. and the french have in common <laughs> and in turn it's good for your father's business as well yes exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> how does I'm, i'm curious tom you mentioned that you know kind of you know doubling down on you know investing in in the brewery and and all that has really um you've seen that return in sort of the I guess I'd say the quality of customer, I guess, and the, the you've kind of developed that communication there. I'm curious, sort of both of you, how has how has sort of your relationship with um, consumers changed or the fans of your sake or people looking for your sake? How has just the general consumer around sake um, changed as a result of um, the last couple of years, if at all? Uh, we, we've, we've actually found um, our consumer base maybe getting slightly younger Um, or maybe I'm getting older. <laughs> one of the two. But, um, I, th I think there's two factors that are <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely rapidly aging. Um, yeah. Good job this isn't going out on video. Um, <laughs> How old are you, Tommy? If I can, if I, if I'm uh, 36. 36. Yeah. Okay. And you're very young. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, I don't feel it. The, the back's the back's gone. Too much pasteurizing. So. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I, it's an interesting one because we, I think we always had a pretty, pretty broad consumer base. Um, we're, we're now looking kind of our average consumers sit between kind of 55 and 25. Um, but it's, it's generally people either at the more discerning end of kind of alcohol consumption or people that are like super into Japan or, or certain types of food, um, obviously leading with kind of food pairings and things I think is, is super important. The tap room itself probably has a slightly younger shift um, just because of the nature, the nature of where it is and where we are. So again, that's probably 22 to 45 um, on, in general, but it, you know, it's, 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 it's different every day, really. Um, I think, Our consumer base hasn't really changed too much, but what we have found is, um, particularly with doing a lot of outreach, we do, we do a lot of brewery tours, experiences, and then we took all those things online. We've had a big uptake in kind of direct communication with us um, and our team. So there's lots of kind of little conversations and Uh, questions and appreciation that's always kind of bubbling or you know over email and and that that direct contact with our consumer even when we couldn't see each other kind of face to face um really kind of took off 
online and over email and that's kind of stayed. Um, yeah, which is great. Um, having, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're all about the sake, sake first, and we just want to make the best possible sake and people to enjoy that. And having that feedback and that appreciation from, um, from your, your customers is, is great. You kind of feel like you've done a good job. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Greg, how has it, it changed? You said, you said prior to the last couple of years, you had almost no direct-to-consumer. Is that, is that something you're, you're looking at for the future? Is putting a little bit more energy in that? Or it's something is, I definitely need to do, yeah. It implies to do some kind of tricks over internet and try to communicate more. And I absolutely despise social media, so... I'm I'm very bad at that. So, but it's something I need to to, to do. I will hire someone from the Z generation because I am obviously unable to do that. Uh, as for the customers, it uh, it's yeah, it has growth. Um, we sell mostly directly to businesses like restaurants and uh, and sack shops. Um, we have an increasing quality. Uh, I think we have something like fifty. Uh, Michelin stars restaurant has customers. Uh, that's some. I'm not, not not to flex, but just to get you the image of that. We are working with uh, ten three stars Michelin restaurant in France, which is very nice for visibility, and it's a very good way to bring people to Sake because uh, the, the sommelier there and the people working are excellent professional and they can explain that very well. And we've been trying. Uh, it's very important to put sake in proper pairings with food, and especially with food that people can recreate. Uh, I try not to work with a Japanese restaurant in France, and I focus on mostly, of course, I have a few Japanese customers, but it's very important that not piling up exotism. I mean, for a French guy going to Japanese restaurant and not that local sushi thing, maybe going to Kaiseki or something a bit more fancy or a bit more traditional. That's already a journey. So he goes there and he has that food he doesn't really understand. He's probably having for the first time. You should start piling things up like, okay, you're going to try Kaiseki. Then you're going to try pairing that with Japanese sake. And on top of that, you will have French sake. It kind of creates something that that's a very big gap so it uh, and especially if the thing the pairing was very good it's probably includes some fancy japanese ingredients very hard to find so one of the best place i like to sell sake is cheese shops french like cheese and you can make absolutely delicious pairing with cheese and it's very easy to go down to the cheese shop buy yourself a piece of conte and it's pairs very, very exceptionally well with that uh, koshu so We've been trying to work like that, and yeah, the customers uh, we have that's working directly with professional and somebody is very important because they can teach the people. And when people go to the restaurants, it's very often that they decide to let themselves, um, uh, they, they tend to leave the pairings uh, and trust the somebody. So, uh, working close with them is a very good way to make very good pairings that can hit the people directly and speaks to them because they already know what kind of ingredients, what kind of flavors, and they've already been doing that much. So it's it's what I'm focusing on more than selling to uh, private and direct customers. I think it's more my job as a parameter to do that. Plus, I hate social media. <laughs> what, 
one small question related to that. I mean, for our listeners who will definitely go to uh, a Kampai Sake, <laughs> um, because you're open to public, that's your that's a big part of your um, of your of your business. What about you, Greg? Do you have a plan to um, open the brewery to to visitors or to create something around the brewery? Uh, actually, I've been doing that for five years. Like people can come to the brewery, and they've been doing that a lot, especially during the pandemics and afterwards. So I absolutely welcome public to come, even during okay. sake making season. We had people coming and uh, watching and doing things. I always have the time. Uh, to, to, to make a small tour of Sakagura to explain what Sake is. That is the essence of my job. So I've been doing that. Just I'm in a ready recluded place. Uh, Tom is in London and it's, uh, I think you can get go there by subway. It's pretty easy to go. Uh, I'm in, uh, the mid- I'm in the middle of a, a small mountain, uh, far from the biggest cities. It's, it takes an, an hour to drive to a big city from my Sakagura. So uh, I think there's kind of two types of Sakaguras. In Europe, you have the urban style. Like Tom, you can have a tap room. You can manage to do things very interesting and some close to my style, which is made, mostly making sake and shipping that to place where it will be consumed. Uh, I cannot have a tap room in my sakagura. I do not have the place, um, the space, and it's very far. I don't think people would be attracted to make a one-hour trip just to come to my small village and enjoy a bit of sake. So. But I do welcome people all the time, of course. Okay, it's, it's great to know because I, I I didn't know. So well, that's it. We're getting. I have a, about another dozen topics I want to go over with you guys. I think what I'll do is I think what I'll do is maybe instead we'll we'll bring you guys back on individually for cool. for some deep dives. If, if we could talk you into that, if we could talk you into that uh, down the road, gentlemen. Thank you so much for making time. I'm very excited to. Uh, to in the hopefully see you in real life here sooner rather than later but then i would absolutely love to have both you guys back on the show we'll do we'll do another deep dive on some maybe topics that you're um particularly passionate about and i'd love to i'd love to learn more about um what you're all what's what's keeping you all busy um, and you're in your very in your various corners of the globe. So and it would be good to be in the same time zone and uh, have and have and have a drink, which is a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is which is something we usually do here at Sake on Air. But... That would be great. Right. We'll have, yeah. to, have to just make a tour. As, yeah, as soon as the Japan borders open again, I will end up on Izakaya. I think I will finish <laughs> the thing from top. <laughs> That would be so cool if the four of us, yeah, could all meet up, have a drink. Oh, that'd time. be beautiful. Be cool. That would be so brilliant. I, I say a drink. I say a maybe. drink. I would, yeah. yeah. Good yeah, yeah. Hours, yeah. <laughs> perfect. 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 Cool. All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Too. Yeah. Real pleasure. Very thank good, you. Very yeah, good. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much, Joel. Yeah, very good. All right. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. 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 And that will do it for this episode of Sake on Air. Please take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using to enjoy our show. Please feel free to send us your questions and comments to questions at sakeonair.com or at sakeonair on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find us over on YouTube as well. Sake on Air is made possible with the generous support of the Japan Sake and Chochu Makers Association. And it broadcasts from the Japan Sake 
and Shochu Information Center in Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Export Japan and Potsuke Productions with editing and sound production by Frank Walter. We'll be back with more Sake on Air in just two weeks and until then, kanpai!